You're listening to a podcast from Hicksville Cornerstone Church. For more information about the church, visit us at hickscc.org. That's H-I-X-C-C.org. Thanks for listening. I'm going to start today's sermon sharing with you something that might either greatly reduce your view of me or greatly increase your view of me. I've left intentionally certain allusions out of my sermons for the past eight months, sometimes at great emotional cost, but it's about time you know my secret. It's about time you know my secret. Again, my hope is that this doesn't affect your view of me too drastically. Here it is. I am a huge Star Wars fan. Huge, huge Star Wars fan. There I said it. There I said it. To this day, I remember sitting at my friend Sean's house in the summer when I was about fourth or fifth grade, and Sean decided to put in Return of the Jedi because that was his favorite Star Wars movie. And now I know, yes, it was indeed out of order that I was watching it. But I sat there from the opening crawl to the dancing scene of the little murder bears, I mean Ewoks at the very end, and I was enthralled, right? Oh, wow, this is amazing. And I said to my buddy Sean at some point, I said, this is awesome. And then he said one of the best phrases afterward. He said, AJ, there's more. (laughs) And for the next several days, we proceeded to watch every Star Wars film that had come out at that point. And then that summer, we watched them again and again and again. When I think of George Lucas, the creator of what's what the creator of Star Wars has done, and I think he's done it better than anyone else in cinema, It's what is called world-building in both literature and and film. Think about it. He built a world of imaginary space wizards, of knights, of smuggler pirates, of Western outlaws. He defined good and evil, and he released this space opera into the world, right? Right? J.R. Tolkien, author of the Lord of the Rings series, and arguably, I think, the greatest world builder in all of literature, said something like this in one of his books on writing. He said this, that as imago dei, as image bearers of God, to world build in literature is to reflect our creator in a way that no other creature can do. God was the original world builder. And we reflect him when writers do the same thing. And one of the ways that George Lucas did this is that he dropped you into the middle of this world with a flesh-out history. And then he let the adventure take place. I'm sure many of you remember the opening crawl of Star Wars. It's a period of civil war. Rebel spaceships striking from a hidden rebel base have won their first victory against the evil galactic empire. And the movie begins, dropping you right into the action. But the crawl sets up the world. It sets up the history and makes the first five minutes of that movie sing. Because groundwork for the world 
has already been laid. Likewise, the author of the Gospel of Matthew also has an opening crawl. It's found in the genealogy that takes place in the first 17 verses. Matthew drops you right into history. And if you're a Jew, for the Jewish audience that knows the history of Israel, it winks at them in regards to what this character, Jesus the Christ, the Messiah, is going to fulfill. And for the Gentile readers who do not know any part of the history of Israel, it grounds the story for them in reality. And when you know history, when you know history, you know the faithfulness of God. And that's what we're going to see here in today's text. Turn with me to Matthew 1, chapter 1. We will read more than one verse today. We're going to read a whole 17. Please stand with me as I read us the text this morning. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the deportation, deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah the father of Shatil, and Shatil the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliud, and Eliad the father of Eliezer, and Eleazar the father of Matem, and Matem the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations, from Abraham to David, were fourteen generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, fourteen generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to Christ, fourteen generations. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. You may be seated. Bow your heads with me. Father God, we're so tempted to look at a text like this today and just see a list. But Lord, in its place, may we see a history. May we see how the faithfulness of God has played out in the workings of his people from the very beginning and culminates in the workings of this man named Jesus of Nazareth, the Christ, the Messiah, 
in whom all the faithfulness that was displayed to your people before him is ultimately fulfilled. your son's name I pray. Amen. Abraham. So God calls Abraham out of the land in Genesis 12 and tells him that he's going to give him a land. He promises to make him a great nation and says that he will bless him. He's going to make his name great. And not only that, he's going to bless all the families on the earth. Now, if you're like me, I would love that phone call from God. How wonderful to hear these things out of nothing of your own. I would like proclamation over my house. But Abram, soon to be called Abraham, knew that he had a huge problem. He was old. And his wife Sarah was equally old. And he did not yet know the faithfulness of God. So when God says, I am going to make you a great nation, he is thinking to himself, Lord, there is a huge hiccup in your plan. We don't have children. We're too old to have children. So Abraham takes matters into his own hands and he has a child with one of his servants. And God says, no, it's not what I promised. And even though Abraham disobeyed, God was faithful. So God sends an angel to visit Sarah and Abraham, and the angel tells them, here's some foreshadowing to what's going to happen in the next chapter. An angel tells them, you're going to have a child in the next year. And it's so shocking to Sarah that Sarah laughs out loud audibly. And I don't think it was a mocking laugh. I think it's one of those laughs that Sarah had to where, you know how when you try to cover a cry and you just can't work up the cry, but you just... (laughs) And she laughs. And the angel, and I think the Lord, because I think this shows very much that the Lord has a sense of humor, he says, and that's what we shall call your child, Isaac which means laughter. You see, even when it's not deserved, even when we disobey God, and even when we laugh at his promises, God is faithful. See, Isaac was born, and Isaac became the apple of his father's eye. Now, Abraham loved his son, and then God asked him to bring his son as a sacrifice. But Abraham now knew something that he didn't know before early on, and that was that God is faithful. So Abraham took Isaac. He had Isaac carry the wood to be the sacrifice, and he took him up to the mountain, and he laid his son on the altar, on the wood, on the tree, and was willing to sacrifice his son. And then suddenly God provided the sacrifice for Abraham and Isaac. And in that moment, you could almost hear Abraham and Isaac laugh as the ram is provided as the sacrifice. Why? Because God is faithful. 
Now Jacob comes along after Isaac. Now Jacob is a trickster. Jacob is a con man. He conned more men than he probably would like to admit. And he got conned into marrying two women. But even in his transgressions, God is faithful. You see, when we read about Jacob, we don't get to develop a very strong affinity towards this man because he continues to make mistakes and withhold love from the wrong people. If someone was going to get canceled in the Bible, if Jacob lived in the 21st century, he would have been woked out of existence, y'all. He's not seen as someone that we need to emulate Jacob. But you see, even in the midst of Jacob's treachery, even in the midst of Jacob's sin and his lack of love for his wife and some of his children, God is still faithful. Jacob becomes Israel, the father of the nations. And then there's Judah and Tamar, right? Judah was the fourth son of Jacob by his mother Leah. Now, Leah was not the loved wife. That was Rachel. But she was blessed to carry the seed of Abraham's promise. And God was faithful to Leah in her sufferings. Her son Judah was not a righteous man. He takes a Canaanite woman as a bride, they have children. Those sons die. One of those children had married a woman named Tamar. And Tamar tricks Judah by pretending to be a cult prostitute on the side of the road to have Judah give Tamar a child. Look, this is a messed up. Like, this is, some of you watch daytime soap operas. Just turn to Genesis, y'all. It's the original. Tamar tricked her father into giving her a child. If Jacob was the guy in the Bible that was a trickster, Judah was the guy that lacked any sort of sexual accountability. Tamar was used over and over and over again by men who were not her husband. But God doesn't need you to be righteous to prove that he's faithful. Tamar becomes the first woman on the genealogy given to us in Matthew. And we're going to see that the majority of the women given to us in the um, genealogy of Matthew are adulterers. The majority. But God is faithful even when we are not. Next, we have Perez, Hezron, Ram, Abinadab, Nashon, and Salmon. Now, Perez was the younger brother that took the blessing. That's common over and over again in the Old Testament, a common theme that exists. The rest really don't do much of anything in Scripture outside of pass the line down. And then we get to Rahab, to Boaz, and to Ruth. Okay? Now, Rahab is both the second woman listed and the second lady of the night. If you remember the story of Rahab, she's a prostitute in Jericho. And when the spies go into Jericho to look at the land, she's the one that saves the spies. And the spies, in turn, save her and her family. And she becomes engrafted into the story of Israel for her faithfulness. And she ends up becoming the mother of Boaz. Now, Boaz is one of my favorite people in the Bible. Love this guy. When you read the book of Ruth, you're like, yeah, I want a Boaz in my life. He is so giving to everyone that he does, that he comes in contact with. Boaz redeems Ruth, you see. There's a whole amazing story there, and I don't use that phrase lightly. Boaz redeems Ruth. Ruth, it points to a greater reality that we're going to see take place in the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
And who is Ruth? She's another non-Jew who is engrafted into the family of God because of her faithfulness to her mother Naomi. And we see here that the faith of a prostitute and the faith of a widow, both outside the line of Israel, are grafted into the family of God by faith, by a God who is faithful. Next, we get to Obed and Jesse and David the king. Look, the first two are there just to point to David. Everyone knows their names, not because they did anything miraculous, but because their grandkid and their son did. David is one of the most famous Jews of all time. But David is the key figure in all the texts today. Not just in this verse, but the whole genealogy. For there are 14 names in the first section, 14 names in the second section, and 14 names in the third section. 14 being a known number to the Jews in their numerology, which numbers are associated with people. 14 being the number of David. It's screaming it the whole way through. David's name is the first one after Jesus in the opening verse. It's all linked to David. And what this clues Matthew's audience into is the fact that the genealogy given to us in Matthew, the the differences in that genealogy and the genealogy in Luke, the major difference is that Matthew's genealogy is a kingly genealogy. It is linking Jesus the Christ to be the true king of Israel. That's what it's saying. The Jewish heritage of Christ and his right to be called king. He is making that loud claim to the audience that this Jesus is the king of the line of David that we've all been waiting for. For those of you that are huge Lord of the Rings fans, maybe you're not a Star Wars person, maybe you're a Lord of the Rings guy, it's that moment where Aragon, right? Tolkien uses the same concept, that Aragon is just put into the scene and then we find out he's a descendant of Eleanor and he is from the true line of kings of Gondor. And so when he finally merges on to be the king in the final book, everyone's like, they've arrived, they're here, they've made it. And at this point in the genealogy, every Jew that is reading it, their ears have perked up. Their hearts have started to beat. They're wondering, is it him? Is this the king we've been waiting for? Is this the Christ? Is this the Messiah? Is this the man that is going to sit on the throne of David and fulfill the promises that God made to David and that God made to Moses and that God made to Abraham? Is this the guy? And Matthew is again winking at his audience saying, yeah, yeah, it is. Keep reading. Let me tell you more about him. And then comes the generations of kings after David. Solomon's listed. Notice how he's born out of wedlock to a man that was a murderer and an adulterer. That's why Matthew uses the word wife of Uriah, not wife of David, even though she would become David's wife. We then see Rehoboam, Abijah, Asaph, Jehoshaphat, Joram, Uzziah, Jothan, Ahaz, Hezekiah, Manasseh, Amos, Josiah, Jeconiah. On a side note, I practice these names so often this week, y'all. Man, I thank God for my like two semesters of Hebrew. I'll tell you that much. 
Now, notice something about these kings. If you've read Samuel, if you've read Kings Chronicles, most of these men are pitiful, right? They are lousy kings. Most of them have no right to be called king by our standards, let alone God's. Others of them are men after God's own heart, like their father David, but fail to pass along the same love of God to their sons. In almost every generation, God has been given the right to destroy the kingdom that he has established because his kings are unfaithful to him. But even when the kings are unfaithful, God is faithful. And then we see also that God is just. The kings are so wicked that God allows Babylon to conquer them. Well, did God abandon his people to another nation? Isn't God unfaithful here? No. Here he is faithful and just. In their wickedness, the kings of Judah forgot Yahweh God. And just like the time of judges, he allows for calamity to come, so they will again call out to God. And they find themselves in a foreign land, and it is there that they remember who they are. It is there in the generations without a king that they remember their true king, Yahweh God. Jeconiah Jeconiah had abandoned God. He was captured and brought into Babylon, and God would have been in his right to end the line of David there. He was a really, (laughs) no one's naming their kid after this guy, okay? They're just not. He's not a good guy. But even here, God is faithful. Even in his extending of justice, he grants mercy to Jeconiah. By the end of Jeconiah's life, he's sitting at the table of the king of Babylon. And he has a son named Shatil, and he fathered Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel would go on to govern the remnant of Judah and rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. A temple that did what? Pointed to the coming Messiah. Even the actions of the would-be kings of the line of David pointed to the true king that would sit on the throne of David. Abiad, Eliakim, Azer, Zadok, Akim, Eliud, Eleazar, Matayim, Jacob only have their 15 seconds of fame on this list. This is it. It's not even 15 seconds of fame, right? If you read it quickly, it's like two. They are not mentioned elsewhere. And then we get to like everyone's favorite couple, right? If there, this was the daytime soap, we'd all be voting for these people. We love this, love these two. Joe and Mary. I call him Joe. We're on a nickname basis. He calls me AJ. We finally come to the parents of Jesus. Mary would be visited by an angel and told that she would bear a child. I wonder if she left. Again, this is not a brand new story. This is an echo of old. Sarah, in her old age, was given the news that she would bear a child as a sign of the covenant of the God of Abraham. And likewise, Mary, in her young age, was given the news that she would bear a child as a fulfillment of the covenant of the God of Abraham. And he would be the one to sit on David's throne. The kingdom of heaven has come. Now, what applications Can we pull from such a genealogy? The first one is easy. I've literally alluded to it the whole entire time. 
And that is God is faithful when his people are not. God is faithful when his people are not. God is merciful to his people. Hear that again, just in case you missed it. God is merciful to his people. Some of you might be here in the building today, and it was hard for you to get here this morning. Not because your body is weak, but because your heart is. You've no one, you know what you've done this week. You know what you've said this week. You know what you've desired this week. You know what you've failed to do this week, too. And you know where your mind has not just wandered to, but ran to this week. And you know, if you're like me, that you've probably been unfaithful to the Lord throughout the week. And we can read this genealogy and we can get in line. We see a whole group of people. None of them are perfect. Actually, most of these people have like serious character flaws. (laughs) Serious character flaws. Only Ruth and Josiah are people like I'm immediately proud of, right? You would think that the king of heaven, the king of David's throne, the Messiah, the Christ, would come from a long line of like really great people. Instead, he comes from a long line of adulterers, of murderers, of those who have literally committed child sacrifice, and those who have nothing else attached to them except for a name on a list. Think about it. If you were going to make up a religion, you'd at least make him look good at the opening crawl. Can you imagine if Star Wars had started out with Luke Skywalker, son of a murderer and an adulterer and a long line of scum and villainy, was being raised on a desert planet with two sons, regularly shot at innocent womp rats in his fun for his spare time, and complained about doing his chores to his aunt and uncle. Wow, what a great movie we're in for. But a Jew would hear this genealogy and go, God was faithful in all that? In all that? God was was faithful? God could and maybe should have abandoned his promise like 42 generations ago. But he sticks with us. God is faithful even when his people are not. You see, God extends grace to his people before they are faithful. Before they are faithful. Some of you might be watching from home today because it was just too hard to face the church this morning. Too hard to be in the same room as someone else here. Your guilt or your shame with your anger or unforgiveness or whatever might, else might have kept you from coming here. Know that because grace has been extended to us, Grace is always extended to you here. We need not hide from God when we fail, and we need not hide from his church when we fail. Church, hear me. We must reflect the same grace and faithfulness God has given us to everyone 
who walks in the doors of our church. Here's an awesome thought, another application. If you are in Christ, you are in this genealogy. If you are in Christ, you are in this genealogy. Galatians 3, 7. Know that, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. In Galatians 3, 29. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. When we get to heaven and we see the book of life, that lists the names of those who have been called by God to dwell in Christ. Your name is on a list, a genealogy list of Jesus. And you're heirs of the king. You are recipients of the promise even in our unfaithfulness, even in our rebellion, Christ extends his grace to us. Amen. And says, you are mine. I'm going to use you. Well, some of you might be thinking, Jesus can't use me in his kingdom, pastor. You're out of your mind. Look at the genealogy we just read. He used an old man and an old lady to have a baby. He used an adulterer. He used prostitutes. He used con men. He used murderers. He used traitors. He used those who were faithful and those who were failed in his purposes over and over again. If you ever say to yourself, Pastor, you don't know what I've done, look at this passage and be reminded that God has already used people probably far worse than you. For it is not someone's actions that make them a child of God. It is their faith that makes them a child of God. Faith that the promises of Christ would cover their sins, would cover their unfaithfulness. They rested on the coming work of Christ by faith. That's what the Old Testament saints did. They rested on the coming work of Christ by faith. While we now, as New Testament saints, rest on the finished work of Christ by faith. Turn with me to Hebrews 11. This is one of those passages that I always tell myself, I'm going to memorize one day. I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. I can't wait. One day I will do it, okay? I promise. Um, But I love this passage. Turn with me to Hebrews 11 if you're there. We're going to read a couple sections from it. It's going to pop up on the screen too. It's the famous faith passage, right? Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Think about that from a Hebrew's perspective. Think about that from Abraham's perspective. He knows that promises is coming. He knows that a child's coming. He's been told he's going to be the father of a whole nation, but he hasn't seen that yet. But he had faith. For it is by it that people of the old, remember how we talked about the old and new, received their commendation. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of the things that are visible. Verse 8, by faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. 
By faith, he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past the age, since she considered him him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead were born descent. How would you like to be described as that in scripture, right? Abraham gets that title. One man who him as good as dead were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as an innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. If you're in Christ, you're the grains of the sand of the seashore. It's a cool thought. He's talking about you here. You are the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham, and he will be faithful to you. When we see these witnesses in the opening genealogy of Matthew, we should be in awe of what God has done and what God can do through us should be in awe of both those things. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Some of you in here might not yet be part of the line of David. And some of you have not played a part in the story of God yet. Today, God invites you into this lineage. He invites you into this genealogy. He will be faithful to you. He extends his kingdom to you. We need only turn to the Savior, even in our unfaithfulness, and cling to the faithfulness of Jesus. It is in Christ where his church resides that we find we need no longer be defined by our worst actions, but are defined by the faithfulness of God towards his people. God is faithful towards his people. May our response be be to submit to the king and receive grace. Bow your heads with me.